14, and we're going to be working our way uh, through those words together uh, now over the next uh, few minutes. Back at the end of, at the end of 2011, uh, it shows you how old I am. I feel like that wasn't that long ago, but yet the years have flown by. Back at the end of 2011, the very talented uh, tennis player Andy Murray uh, now Sir Andy Murray, was enduring a, a difficult year, and he was looking for a new uh, coach. Sorry, Lewis, I don't know whether my clicker's not working. If you could put it... There he is, in case you didn't know him. Uh, as I say, he'd enjoyed a tough season. He'd um, uh, particularly struggled in the four Grand Slams, uh, and he was looking for someone to come in to turn things around for him. So, as a keen tennis fan... And also, as someone who'd played the sport since the age of five, I picked up the phone and made a call to my dad to see who he thought would be at the right fit for Sir Andy. As much as I would have personally loved to phone Andy myself to offer my service, I wasn't quite sure that I would meet the requirements. And in the end... On this very day, in fact, on New Year's Eve 2011, Murray appointed this man, Ivan Lendl, slightly more qualified than me. Was it a good decision? Could Lendl really make a change for Murray as he headed into the coming year? Was Murray right to trust him? Well, as I say, there was, there was evidence to back Lendl's claim to be able to help. Lendl himself had reached 19 Grand Slam finals, and he'd won eight of them. He'd even won three U.S. Opens in a row at his peak in the mid-1980s. And so for Andy Murray then, Lendl seemed to be the perfect fit, someone who was offering to help him at the exact moments he most needed it in the Grand Slams. So in, in that way, Lendl's claim to help Murray achieve uh, something didn't seem too outrageous, and Murray seemed right to trust him that in Lendl, maybe he would find the answer to his tennis frustrations. Now, what I've just described there is a very specific situation. But each of us, as each of us, tomorrow heads into a new year. You know, I think we actually, each of us here, find ourselves in a similar position with similar questions that Andy Murray faced all those years ago. Who or what will we turn to? trust in, put our hope in for the coming year. See, the new year comes with all kinds of opportunities, doesn't it? Maybe this year will be the year that I finally get that promotion or that job that I've always wanted. Or it'll be the year that I finally get myself into better physical shape. Or, or it'll be the year when I can finally retire and enjoy all those good things in life. As I list those things, I wonder what you're thinking about at this moment. What are the specifics that you are hoping for, dreaming of, even, for this coming year? As you think about that thing or those things, here's then a question for you. How confident are you that it will work out this year as you hope? And what will you do if it doesn't? I'm sorry to be a dampener here on New Year's Eve, 
But the reality is, isn't it, that we so often find in life that things don't work out as we'd hoped or even as we'd expected. In fact, as we look out at the world around us, even with the optimism that the new year brings with, us, with it, it's hard to look past the unreliability of all that we see around us, the shakiness of all that we see around us, the, the fears then that so quickly come and take hold of us because of what we might face. And it's into that reality, the world around us, of that seemingly pretty unreliable, shaky, fear-filled world that I think John 14, 1 to 7, speaks so much stability and so much hope to us again this morning. Gives us a reliable and trustworthy foundation on which we can build our lives again this year. No matter whether all of our earthly dreams come about or don't. After all, just look how Jesus begins there. If you've got a Bible with you, in John 14, verse 1. He says these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. As we hear those words, aren't those words that we all long to hear deep down? Particularly if they come with actual reason to believe that that can be true for us. For our hearts genuinely not to be troubled. So what does Jesus go on to say then that we can do this year if we want that to be true? If we want our hearts not to be troubled, how can that be the case for us? What or who specifically do we need to turn to or hope in for that reliable, solid foundation? Well, first and foremost, Jesus says, to God and to him. Look how he continues there in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus, as we uh, read about at the end of the previous chapter, has just told his disciples that he is going to be leaving them very soon, something that inevitably would give them reason to be troubled. He was their teacher, their friend, soon to leave them. Certainly, Jesus' leaving them wouldn't have been on any of their New Year's hopes for that year. And yet here, Jesus speaks reassurance, doesn't he? That if they will keep looking to him, Believing and trusting in him, they genuinely don't need to fear to be troubled. And the good news for us this morning is that these words hold, are hold, held out to us as well. See, if it was only that Jesus, while he was with his disciples physically, could speak to them and of not having any need to fear, well then, we would be in a different position, wouldn't we? We today don't have the physical Jesus walking with us. But the beauty of what Jesus says here and goes on to say is that there is reason for us too to not be troubled, anxious, fearful about our lives, even when physically Jesus has gone. So let's get into this. Let's get into the rest of the passage now then and consider why for us this coming year Jesus' words hold true, that we too, if we will trust in him, have reason to not be troubled why we can have this reliable, unshakable hope that can stand the test of whatever comes our way in 2024. 
To see this, let's see what it is exactly that Jesus is claiming about himself in the rest of this passage. First of all, read with me again verses 2 to 6. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't imagine Ivan Lendl used these words when he took over precisely as as Andy Murray's coach, but he could have said something like this, couldn't he? Let not your heart be troubled, Andy. I am the way to Grand Slam success. With me on board, soon your wait for a major tennis title will be over. Well, here Jesus makes a similar but much more significant claim than that, doesn't he? In the clearest of manners, despite Thomas's seeming confusion, he tells the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. I am the way to the Father and to the Father's house. Now, as we read what Jesus says that he's going, uh, as we read that Jesus says that he's going to prepare this place or room for his disciples in the Father's house, it's worth recognizing that this concept of the Father's house is not new to the disciples. In fact, we're told that Jesus has already talked about his Father's house earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, when we read that he was forcefully drove people from the temple saying, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But of course, Jesus isn't saying here that he's preparing a room for his disciples in the earthly copy of the father's house, the temple. He's not gone to make some beds and shove some of the clutter from there in the room into another spare room to make space for them in this temple building. No, instead, Jesus is making this incredible claim, that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples, for those who believe in him, in the permanent, in the eternal, in the perfect dwelling place of his Father. He's preparing a place for them in heaven. As we just stop and think about that for a moment, what an incredible promise this is that Jesus is making, isn't it? A promise that changes everything. Because it's a promise that changes everything about our future. The idea and promise of a brighter future is what can make the start of a new year an exciting time, isn't it? Maybe this year things will be on the up, things will improve, they will get better. Well, here, Jesus isn't promising anything specific about this coming year for you. But he is saying that no matter what the coming year looks like, you really do have a brighter and a better future than you could ever possibly imagine. Just think with me what the Father's house will be like. 
Amongst other places, Revelation 21, I think, gives us an incredible insight. Here's what we find out, that it will be a place where God will dwell with his people. It will be a place where God will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. It will be a place where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It will be a place where God will make all things new. And there in Revelation 21, how's the new Jerusalem described? The dwelling place of the Lord as having the glory of God. A radiance like a most rare jewel with walls built of jasper. The city made of pure gold and its foundations adorned with every kind of jewel. If you have a moment this afternoon, here is what I'd encourage you to do. Just read through that chapter, Revelation 21, and stop every now and again and take in the beauty, the glory of what that chapter shows. And then, having read all of that, stop and take in the fact that in these words in John 14, Jesus is saying that if you will believe and trust in him, he has prepared a place there for you. It is genuinely hard to fully comprehend, to fully take in. But that place that I've just described, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, that is your future. That's what awaits you. That is where you will spend eternity. A place where, imagine this amongst these dark winter days, there will be no night. The glory of God always giving its light. The Lamb always as its lamp. That is where you are heading if you are a Christian this morning. And how does knowing that change things? Well, I think above all, it takes us back to what Jesus began with, doesn't it? It gives us reason for our hearts not to be troubled. This promise, as the disciples must have talked about it later, and as they must have reflected on it through the rest of their lives, it must have been one that they kept coming back to and clinging on to, right? As they pressed on in following Jesus. Just think of what these disciples went through. So many faced incredible hardship in the years to come. Harsh, brutal persecution. Many of them were even killed. Yet Jesus' words here surely would have constantly reminded them, this is not the end for me. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me in the Father's house and he will come again and he will take me to himself. He will take me there. And of course, as I've been saying, what we read here is not just a promise for the disciples back then to be comforted and strengthened by, but it is a promise for all of us here this morning that we also can be comforted by, strengthened by. Look again at the language that Jesus uses in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Jesus is not saying to the disciples, listen, my father's house, it has a few spare rooms, okay? You guys probably can can come in in and use those. First come, first served. 
It's not even saying, listen, I've had my father put an extension on. Space for you and a few more if they fancy it. No. Jesus' words here point us to the fact that the father's house has many, has an abundance, an overflow of rooms. Again, in Revelation 21, the absolute enormity of the new Jerusalem is described there in great detail. It is incredible. And let's just say that having enough space, having enough rooms, is not going to be a problem. And Jesus has already said, hasn't he, in chapter 3, verse 16 of John's Gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not die, but shall have eternal life. So Jesus' promise here to prepare a place for the disciples is in no way exclusive. He says it to you, and he says it to me as well this morning. If you believe in me, there is a place prepared for you in my Father's house. And how does he know that? Because he has already gone to prepare it for you. And so Jesus says, knowing that, fixing that truth in your mind and in your heart again, do not let your hearts be troubled. Your future is brighter than you could possibly even imagine. Now, as I say this, here's the thing that I would imagine is still out there in your minds as we think about the good, how good this news is. Yes, this is good news, but that doesn't also, it doesn't also change the reality, does it, of how hard life can be right now. And I really do have things in my life that trouble me. And I'm sure that you do as well, that make us anxious, that make us fearful. And the same can be said, surely, can't it, for Christians right across our world. In fact, many are facing so much greater hardship than we can imagine. Given all of that, how can Jesus speak like this? Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, here, I think, is the thing. What Jesus is calling to us to here is not a life free from trouble. And it is therefore not a life free from the anxieties, the fears that come with those troubles. But what Jesus is calling us to here is a life of faith. A life of faith in him, knowing that none of those troubles, however great they will be, can ever snatch us from his hand. And that faith in Christ, that gives us a stability, doesn't it? A stability of heart, a stability of mind, an unshakable foundation on which we can then stand when those troubles and difficulties in life come and seemingly batter us. Just look with me at two of the specific encouragements that I think we find here. If we look at the the language that Jesus uses. First, look with me at the repeated use of the word prepared in verses 2 and 3. Isn't that word incredible? Glorious? It is a reminder that Jesus has already prepared your room, your place, 
And if it is prepared for you, God will see to it that you get there. Your room is not going to be left unoccupied. And then also look at the promise halfway through verse 3. That Jesus himself will come again and take you to be with himself. How personal is that promise? This is Jesus' personal promise to every one of his followers. I myself will come back for you. I'm not going to send some unreliable messenger who might make it, might not. I'm not going to give you a complicated roadmap for you to, to follow and hopefully to get there. No, I am going to come myself and I will lead you there. I will take you there. And when we get there, I am not going to leave you either. I'm going to be with you forever. Sometimes I think Christianity, particularly in the media or in the wider world, can be portrayed as, as a religion where some high and mighty, impersonal God looks to smite people who don't do what he wants. And Jesus then simply is this kind of escape route that we seem to find to escape from that judgment. But just notice with me how beautiful, how personal these words are. All the way through. What do we see? We see the Father's loving heart reflected in the fact that his house has an abundance of rooms. And we see Jesus' loving heart reflected in the fact that he personally goes to prepare those rooms. And he will come back personally to bring his followers to them and to bring them to himself. Great Vic, let not your hearts be troubled this year. This is the God who is your God, who is our God. The God who loves you, who has prepared for you an incredible, eternal future in his house. Let's let that truth be a comfort and a strength, a stable foundation to live on this year. But of course, linked to this, Jesus' words here don't also just leave us then blindly hoping that maybe we will do enough to get there. They also tell us what exactly the way to the Father's house is, and that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Remember Jesus' words there in verse 6? I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in the increasingly pluralist society that we live in, we have to say that for many, these kinds of words are, are offensive, aren't they? Incendiary, even. How can we possibly say that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can come to God? That would be surely going back to the beginning be like Ivan Lendl coming to Andy Murray in 2011 and saying, listen, Andy, you have to choose me as your coach. Do you know why? Because I am the only one who can help you win those Grand Slams that you want to win. That would add a bit to, to the claim, wouldn't it? Okay, Ivan, I get you've, you've won a few trophies yourself, but what about the other guys? What about other professionals who've won more than him? Boris Becker, Pete Sampras, Rod Laver, tennis lovers, you can keep going with your list. 
would be a pretty outrageous claim if Lendl had said that, wouldn't it? But as I say, that is exactly the kind of language that Jesus is saying here. In verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. So what is it exactly about Jesus that makes him able to make this kind of claim? That the only way to come to God is through him? After all, as we've been thinking about, if that is true, that has to change things in our lives, doesn't it? Changes our priorities for the new year. Sure, getting in shape, earning more money, restoring family relationships, those would probably be all good things to try to aim for. But if Jesus is right here, this is going to be the number one priority, isn't it? Daily walking and trusting in him. And thinking about this then, what is it exactly then about Jesus that makes him the one who we can turn to in the year ahead? For those here who have been Christians for many years, what is it about Jesus that means that this year he is remaining the one for you to turn to, as we sung about earlier, to abide in? For those of you who wouldn't call yourselves Christians here this morning, what is it about Jesus that means he really can follow through on what he says, what he promises for you too? That he can offer this stability and hope in amongst a shaky, fear-filled world. Well, let's break this down by finally breaking these descriptions down that Jesus gives to himself. The way, the truth, and the life. First then, the way. And let's see together here how Jesus is the only one who we can turn to this year if we want to have that genuine, certain hope for the future because he alone has made the way open to the Father. And to see this, we don't actually need to look much further on in John's gospel itself. Jesus is speaking to the disciples here during the Last Supper. So his talk of going to prepare a place for the disciples in his Father's house, that is not for Jesus some far-off, distant event. No, it is actually, he is speaking about what is about to happen in the coming hours. Over the next day or so, John's gospel describes Jesus' arrest, the denial of Peter, Jesus' trials before the high priest and Pilate, the mocking and flogging of Jesus, and ultimately then, his death on the cross. And it is there, on the cross, that as Jesus dies, he makes the way open. He makes the way open again to the Father. See, the Bible is clear that apart from Christ's work on our behalf, all of our futures are bleak. No matter whether we paper it over with a worldly successful 2024 or not. The reality is, for each of us here this morning, because of our sin, because of our rejection of God and his good rule in our lives, Apart from Christ, we find ourselves as his enemies, cut off from the Father, unable to come into his holy presence. Ultimately, we find ourselves facing eternal judgment. But on the cross, Jesus made the way. On the cross, Jesus changed all of that. 
Listen to what 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, his death on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. On the cross, the great exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin on himself and suffers the punishment that we deserve. And we, trusting in him, are made righteous. That is, sins wiped away, clothed with Christ's own righteousness. And because of that, Jesus has made the way open. Open to the Father. Open now and open for eternity to come. Jesus tells his disciples he's going to prepare a place for them. And he does. He has. This is no empty promise that Jesus makes here. No, this is a promise that is fulfilled, that is nailed into history. Jesus has done it. And as we see this, we have to recognize also that this great exchange can only ever be fulfilled through Christ. Nobody else could do this. Because on the cross, this wasn't just someone like us dying. Did you notice there the language in 1 Peter? Jesus is described as the righteous. Because he is the only sinless man to ever walk the earth. And because of that, he alone could make this exchange. As we sang earlier, there is no other name by which we can be saved, through whom we are redeemed. No other name can save. In Jesus alone we find someone who can transform our futures, transform our futures from one of fear and judgment to one of hope, to one of life. That is the greatest, most important transformation we could ever hope for, isn't it? Better health for 2024, that would be incredible. More time off, more money, maybe to go on a holiday, that would be brilliant. But ultimately, those things may not materialize, and ultimately, those things will pass away. An eternity with Christ, the one who has made the way, if we will come to him this year, that has already been made certain. That is already yours, and that will never pass. Secondly, then, let's, let's consider why we can trust Jesus as one to calm our troubled hearts again this year because of what he says about who he is as the truth. And as the truth, we can be sure that what he promises will happen. To see this first, look with me at the next verse of John 14. The final verse that we read, sorry. Jesus says in verse 7 there, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And building on this then, just in the next few verses, in verse 11, Jesus makes this incredible claim. Saying, believe, in, believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What Jesus is saying here is that as his disciples sit and listen to his words. They are not just listening to a wise teacher. 
No, they are listening to the teacher. As Jesus speaks, he is speaking as one with the Father's authority. As Jesus speaks, he is speaking the true words of the Creator God. In fact, wasn't that what we were thinking about over recent weeks here? Jesus, in the beginning of John, is described as the Word, isn't he? The Word who was with God in the beginning, who made all things. If that is the case, what more trustworthy source can we have for this coming year than Jesus? He is the truth because he is the true communication from the Father to our worlds. And he is the truth because he himself is God. One who is fully trustworthy and one who is fully able to follow through on all that he has promised. When Jesus says then that he is the way to the Father and that if we will believe in him, he will personally bring us to him, he will do it. In this day and age, truth is a question thing, isn't it? There are so many truths out there. Surely that's what we we hear about all the time. But what Jesus says here is that that isn't the case. He alone is the truth. And do you know, despite what the world might tell us, that is actually good news for us this morning. That is good news. Because if Jesus is the truth, that gives us a rock-solid stability on which we can live our lives. And it gives us a rock-solid hope for the future, because what he says goes. And what he promises will happen. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus' final description of himself as the life fully backs up all that we're saying. Remember, we've been thinking about Jesus' promise, haven't we, to bring those who are trusting in him to the Father. But of course, For each of us, there is this one key barrier that we will face before we can go to be with the Father. The barrier of death. And this is why Jesus' final description of himself here as the life is so important and so incredible. Because as the life, one who alone has defeated death, he can and will lead all of those trusting him through that barrier of death and into life. When he was on earth, Jesus demonstrated, didn't he, that he had authority over death. Just a few chapters previous, in John 11, we read of him raising raising Lazarus, sorry, from the dead, with these words, Lazarus, come out. Jesus broke through the barrier of death and brought him to life, a man who was already dead for four days. Incredible authority. Authority over death. But of course, that wasn't it for Jesus and being the life. Ultimately, in raising Lazarus, he only prolonged his life, didn't he? Because one day, Lazarus would again die. No, for Jesus, being the life meant smashing the barrier of death to pieces once and for all. Not just for Lazarus, but for all who will come to him, who will trust him. 
And that is what he did, isn't it? When just three days after dying on the cross to pay for our sins, he rose again. Death could not hold the life. Death could not hold Jesus. And as Jesus rose, it was a declaration that death will not then also hold those trusting in him. Why? Because death is the penalty of sin. And Jesus' resurrection was proof that the sins of all who would trust in him have once and for all been paid, been dealt with. So now there is no hold that death has on Jesus' followers. The barrier has been smashed. The way to the Father has been made open. All because of Jesus. Here then is what we can sing, isn't it, of the Saviour. And sing with great confidence and abounding hope. When I pass through death, as I enter rest, I depend on you. I depend on you. For eternal life, to be raised with Christ, I depend on you. I depend on you. There is no more dependable person than the person of the Lord Jesus. He is the life. If we will depend on him, even death will not be the end. Because he will raise us to be with himself forever, bringing us to that place that he has prepared for us. And let me just say that if Jesus is not who you are already depending on, trusting in, in your life, just really encourage you, come to him this morning. Turn to him in this coming year and find hope, find security that can calm even the most troubled heart. He really is the way offering certain hope for the future. He really is the truth. What he promises will happen. He really is the life, offering life to you and life to all who will come to him. So as we head into another new year, feel free to go ahead and set your New Year's resolutions. Go ahead, shoot for your hopes and for your dreams in your life. But above all, resolve to do this. Look to Jesus every single day. Look to him. Trust in him and know that in him you have a reliable, a trustworthy foundation on which you can build your life. Your life now and you have an, a reliable, trustworthy foundation on which you can build your future. A future that is stable a future that is certain. In Jesus and Jesus alone, we have genuine reason, don't we, for our hearts not to be troubled. No matter what comes our way in the coming years. So let's lean on him. Let's look to him. And let's look to share him with others out there who are also looking for the same things that we find in him. Peace and hope, security. Going back to where we began this morning. 
Ivan Lendl did actually go on to successfully help Andy Murray to victory in Grand Slams. But here's what we can remember this morning. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one in whom we can all find the ultimate victory if we will look to him. Victory over sin, victory over death. Let's together as a church and each of us individually rejoice in that truth this year. Rest in Christ and let's look to point others to the victory that we find in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving heart towards us. That in your house there are many rooms. And Lord, we thank you that you have made the way open for us to come to you through the way, through the Lord Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, thank you that he has destroyed that barrier of death. Lord, thank you that he has paid for our sin. And Lord, thank you that in him we have a secure, a glorious future that awaits us in your presence. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. Lord, help us day by day this year to keep looking to you. Don't let us be distracted, Lord, by all the other things that the world will throw at us. Keep us looking to Christ above all. Lord, we thank you for the security, the stability, and the hope that we find in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to close by singing that song that we learned uh, earlier again. It so fittingly picks up on lots that we've been thinking about there, doesn't it? So let's stand and sing together. Let's declare together our dependence on Christ. Let's stand.
And now as we head into a new year, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.